Hi, my name is Londe Yusuf. And my name is Reggie Williams. And we're the co-founders of Black Film Space. Black Film Space is a grassroots organization dedicated to enhancing the skill sets of black filmmakers and building a community of creatives. We host events such as screenwriting workshops, panels, mixers, and other events that are designed to support black content creators. In the next episode of the Black Film Space podcast, we interview Hans Charles. Hans is an acclaimed cinematographer with over a decade of experience. Hans was a cinematographer in the documentaries The 13th and Mr. Soul. Prior to that, he was the assistant camera for Bradford Young on the films Middle of Nowhere, Mother of George, and Pariah. We talk with Hans about what makes a good assistant camera and a good cinematographer, as well as the differences between shooting a narrative versus shooting a documentary. But before we begin the interview, we have a few brief announcements about our events in May 2019. We have two screenwriting workshops, one on Thursday, May 16th, and one on Thursday, May 30th, both in Manhattan. Admission is $6. For more info on all these events, visit blackfilmspace.com. Now, on to our interview. All right, Hans, thank you for joining us on the Black Film Space podcast. Absolutely. I'm happy to be here. Cool. So just looking at your resume, you, it, you have a lot of experience as an assistant camera, as an AC prior to your cinematography work. I just like to hear more about, I guess, how you became an AC and, you know, why you became an AC, you know, what you like about uh, being an AC. Yeah, my assistant camera work came from... Really, it's, it's kind of a weird story, but I sort of came in the business a little bit on the executive, like trying trying to sort of be an executive. Um, and I was working with an independent company and there was a film that we decided we were going to acquire. And then the company I was working for kind of fell through, but I believed in the movie. So I signed on to be a producer mm-hmm. on that film or associate producer, really. Um, and then I met... That's how I met Brad. They were doing pickup shoots for this movie. And then I met Brad through that. And then when that movie went into post, Brad was sort of wasn't really working a lot. And he was teaching. He's an adjunct professor at Howard. Mm -hmm. And I met him in a cinematography class. And then he, you know, just invited me one day to do a shoot that he was doing just to just another body, Mm -hmm. you know, and then I did that. And then he was like, hey, I got this other thing you want to do. This one you'll get paid for. Like, you want to try that? He was, he, was, he was shooting a music video that was being done by puppets. It was a miniature set. Mm-hmm. And they needed somebody to dump the digital footage. And this is, this is the early, early days of HD cameras and, and data. So mm-hmm. this is early, early. So nobody really knew how to do the data dumps. And neither did I really, mm-hmm. but the director kind of showed me how to do it on set. And I did it. And that was like my first paycheck. I made $200. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. So <clears throat> yeah, that was like my first sort of assistant paid gig. And then Brad and I started doing like a series of really small things. He'd invite me, you know, I was always like this extra hand. And then uh, we got his first big feature, a movie called Mo. And he said, look, I can't. First, he said, well, you, you should be the, the, the focus puller. He was like, I, you know, I had never really done it before. Because he was like, if you buy an AC kit, I'll figure out a way to get you on sets as an AC. So I, uh, I signed on to be the, in, the camera intern, uh, which turned out to be the, the loader. Mm-hmm. This film was shot on Super 16. And, uh, and I was a, a loader and I drove the camera truck and I worked with the PAs, but that, that was a job where I didn't get paid. I think it was six weeks. Yeah, it was like six weeks of work in New York and I didn't get paid. Mm. <laughs> Long days. So I learned a lot. Mm. And after that, Brad was like, okay, the next thing we're doing, the next big thing I'm doing is this movie called Mississippi Dam. Mm. And he was like, this one you're going to get paid on. You're going to be the second because that was also shot on film. He's like, I know you know your thing. Now you could now you could be the second. So that one was like that was eight weeks or nine weeks of shooting, and mm-hmm. I got paid for that. Mm-hmm. North Carolina, eight weeks straight, and then and then after that we did a film called Entre Nos, and I was that was the first time I was a, a focus puller, and that one we shot on digital. 
on that. So that was my first gig with him as a focus puller. And then we did a series of shorts and music videos. And then we did Pariah. Mm. We did Pariah the feature. I worked on him as uh, as really an intern, maybe a set, no, intern is on Pariah the short. And then um, then I got the chance, chance to work on Pariah the feature. That's dope. That's dope. So is this like being a AC, is that something that you fell in love with? At what point did you know you wanted to become a cinematographer? That's a good question. I didn't, you know, I didn't really know I wanted. Cinematography was sort of, I kind of realized that being around the camera was what's, what was important. That was the thing I said, like, okay, whatever I do, I've got to be around the camera because I realized that the director was always around the camera. The producers were always around the camera. The actors were always around the camera. The money people were always near the camera. So there was no point in doing something that was far from the camera. Mm. And the thing that I managed to sort of immediately access was being an assistant. You know, I just had a natural knack for being able to see things in sort of 3D and 2D because you needed to, you know, I was, I don't want to call myself a, it's kind of conceited to say a pioneer, but I just remember as a non-union focus pool in New York, I was one of the few guys willing to pull focus on a monitor. Like back then that was like a no-no. Mm -hmm. The guys thought you were crazy for doing that. And I thought people were crazy for not doing it. Mm. Cause I was just like, it's just easy. And people were like, well, we can't see like, how can you tell how far the guy is? And I just, I just could tell, like it wasn't a big deal for me. Mm -hmm. So that made me unique as a focus puller. So I was just on the monitor, and stuff was in focus. It, it drive people crazy, but it was always it worked. Mm -hmm. So I didn't, I, I want, I always wanted to be a writer in this business. I was never interested in really being a director. I was always wanted to be a writer. I always focused on my writing throughout grad school because I went to grad school at Howard, um, Howard University's graduate film program. Mm -hmm. um, and I always wanted to be a writer. That was the thing that I was always passionate about. But I, I did this internship in Los Angeles and realized that the path for, you know, I wanted to be a writer in control. I wanted to be, I wanted to create television shows. I wanted to, you know, write movies. And, and at that time, the path was just, it was like climbing Everest to get a TV show. I mean, it was just impossible. It was like, I mean, you know, all the people who sort of advised me were like, yeah, it's like, it's like 10 years of working in a writer's room. And then you'll get a chance to move up enough to maybe you'll pitch. And that's if you can stay consistently working. And I realized, like, I can't dedicate 10 years of my life on, mm -hmm. a, on a gamble like that. Mm -hmm. Like, there needs to be a sure path in this business. So, you know, when I went to, to graduate school, I was just kind of trying to figure it out. And then the camera thing, I realized, you know, I did this out of undergrad. I did a, a short film called Flickr. And it was, I can't remember the name of the director, but he was a protege at the time of Spike Lee. Mm -hmm. And uh, a friend of mine who I was in undergrad with invited me to work on, he got on the set and he, and, and I realized like I was a PA, but I realized like the camera was where all, everything was buzzing. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to figure out how to get near the camera. So when everything happened with Brad and all that, that's, I was like, all right, I'll stick to this. And I was good enough at it. I was good enough as an assistant to, to do that. And for years of doing assistant work. Um, and then it was just out of, it was through the graduate school program that I started doing cinematography work. It just was like, oh, Hans, why don't you shoot this for me? People mm -hmm. would ask me. And I was like, oh yeah, I guess I can do that. I guess I know how to do that. Like, I've been, I've been hanging around Brad enough. I know how these lights should be. I know how this should be. I don't know how that should be. And that's a really, really a process of trial and error because I don't, I don't honestly think I'm a naturally gifted cinematographer. Mm -hmm. um, there are people who are just literally, they came out the wound shooting came out the wound with lenses in their eyes. You know? yeah. <laughs> and I don't, I don't really think that's who I am. I think I'm just a person who just watched enough and could sort of figure things out by watching people do it. Mm -hmm. That's sort of how it works for me, is what I would say. Yeah. So that's how I became a cinematographer. But I think the other reason I became a cinematographer because I really like working with people. And the cinematography is, I feel like, one of the few jobs where you're never really alone in working. I mean, as a director, you'll spend time alone. As an editor, you'll spend time alone. As a writer, you'll spend time alone. As a cinematographer, you're really never going to spend time alone. So there's never a point where you're working by yourself. And I like, I'm, I really, and the more I do it, the more I really just adore the collaboration. Okay. Because it's a, it's, a, it's a spreading of responsibility. You know what I mean? There's a responsibility that's spread. You know, you're really adding to, you're really perfecting something. It's like, oh, it's, here's the way I'd, I'd say it succinctly. It's crowdsourcing, you know, it's a form of crowdsourcing. What did you learn that helped you become a cinematographer? 
I think when you're the great thing about being an assistant camera person is you you see things, things happen in front of you uh, that people don't don't anticipate that they'll say or do. You sort of can survey the field. You can you can observe things, and so being an assistant taught me the politics of set mm. that. If somebody jumps right from graduate school right into being a cinematographer, has never spent time as an assistant, I think they lose out on. The second thing I feel like being an assistant taught me was to respect the men and women who work below the line on any given set. That they are working very hard for every dime that they earn, and that your status as a cinematographer or director or writer or producer or even executive it's not higher than theirs because you have more equity in the film mm -hmm. that is a lesson that has never left me um, that doesn't mean you know like, you know as an assistant you know we rap and then you know as an assistant i'm you know i'm there with the grips and electrics are rapping for another hour mm -hmm. you know putting stuff away now as a dp i don't stick around <laughs> You know, I leave. It's like, okay, guys, I'll see you. I'm out. Thank you for a great day. So it doesn't doesn't mean that I change my behavior necessarily, mm -hmm. but the attitude is is definitely. I definitely do not see myself better than like I made it. I don't do that. Mm -hmm. I tell my assistants all the time, like you know, I'll pick up, I'll do whatever. Like my assistants are always stopping me from doing stuff. You know, like mm -hmm. look, I did this, and I'm never never gonna be too good to pick up a case sticks full focus to set something um, I'll never and that's not that's not that's not like there's an old adage in in the assistant sort of world like the DP has to help you you're not moving fast enough that's just that's utter bullshit mm -hmm. and I, I want to say that clearly if the DP is helping you it's because we're we're we are all focused on the same goal like the mm -hmm. DP I and so when I do it I don't want you to get hurt there is pressures in being assisted. You're supposed to move fast and I'm going to move things. And it's my part of what I'm supposed to do is make sure that you don't, you don't get physically hurt, that you're not emotionally, professionally disrespected. Um, and so if I can lend a hand to relieve some pressure, then especially on, on lesser things that don't require skills like lifting a case and moving something, then I should absolutely do that. Mm -hmm. And that's not done out of frustration of the person not doing their job, that's done out of camaraderie, mm -hmm. and we're all in the same foxhole. You know, you would move the mountain for me. Why wouldn't I move the mountain for you? Mm -hmm. Right? Like to me, it doesn't make sense that I would not participate in that just because my title is DP. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that's like a thing. Oh no, no, body, don't touch. And I'm like, no, it doesn't work that way. Not in, not for me. If we need to move this and it needs to be moved in 10 seconds and it's impossible for you to do it in 10 seconds, why wouldn't I help? Yeah, I'm just going to sit there and watch, watch them struggle. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, because it's not like maybe I'm not glaring at you, but maybe the producers are glaring. Maybe everybody's glaring at you and that you shouldn't have that. So, you know, um, as I, the more I've worked as a cinematographer, the better I am at working with my assistants. Early on, I, I wasn't as good mm -hmm. because there's a lot of pressure when you're a young cinematographer or you're a new, I should say, a new cinematographer. Mm -hmm. But now I'm so much better because the little things, I know that the little, the mistakes an assistant would make, I don't take those as like going to wreck my career. Mm -hmm. And that's an important attitude to have. Like, look, shit's going to happen. It's going to be bad, but you don't, you don't throw your assistant under the bus for that, you know, mm -hmm. but when you're a younger cinematographer, you panic. And so I've, I've gotten much better about that now. Mm -hmm. Are there, are there any specific examples you, you'd be willing to share about some mistakes you made when you were just starting off as a cinematographer? Uh, what kind of mistakes? Like, like specific to personnel or like visual? Both. In a weird thing, I'm not sure of too many visual mistakes I made. Like I like did this wrong, did that wrong, just because I feel like when you're a cinematographer of color, you just don't have like the like you're not allowed to make mistakes in, in a weird way. Mm. Um, you just you can't afford to make mistakes. But definitely personnel, I think uh, some of the I've not especially very early on, I, I didn't talk to people. I didn't talk to them well, but I just there's even you can always you can always 
communicate with the people you work with better, mm-hmm. you know? And there's like this one specific thing I thought of, I'm thinking about, like I was doing this web series and you know, the operator came from different, I had two operators and, and the operator was coming from the um, reality world. And I was, you know, I was bringing a specific sitcom, single camera approach, not sitcom, but single camera approach. And so I could have communicated because the, the operator was giving me some resistance mm-hmm. because the operator didn't really understand like the language I was using and the philosophy I was using. And I, sh- and I could have been better about like just not being frustrated because the situation was getting frustrating. Was, it wasn't what we were doing. It was just, it was just tight budgets, tight times. Mm-hmm. But there, there's never, there's, you're, there's never, there's no amount of time or stress or whatever that allows you to lose courtesy. Mm-hmm. Is like my new thing. Like mm-hmm. You never, you should always be courteous even when you're frustrated. You know, um, because the frustration will pass, but the wounds from being rude to somebody or not being nice, because you can you can not be rude, but but kind of chill the air on a set. Like, mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, cold air. So I feel like, yeah. So that that is not worth worth it mm-hmm. for the moment of frustration, because the moment of frustration will almost always pass. Yeah, and and people will always appreciate you keeping steady through difficult situations, especially if you're the leader. Mm-hmm. People will always appreciate that because you know they know you could fly off the handle, even subtly. So the better you do that, it's always gonna be good. It's mm-hmm. never gonna be bad. So to me, that was the lesson. Oh, never, never let your insecurities, your momentary frustrations ever let you interact with people in such a negative way that they're just going to be like you know, especially people that work below you i think if people work above you i think you know they're that's their pay grade you know mm-hmm. <laughs> they're paid to be with with a pesky employee mm-hmm. but people who work below you are not paid enough to deal with your crap mm-hmm. is the way so you you i always you know people who work for work for you have to be treated with the utmost respect, I think. Okay, that makes sense. Going back to your experience as an AC, was there anything that you can think of that you learned on the technical end that you now apply to your cinematography now? I think in general, when you're assistant, um, it, you know, you get an opportunity to really watch people light. Mm-hmm. You have probably one of the best vantage points. You see what's brought in, and then you see the results. You can learn something about operating, but I feel like you have to operate to really learn all the ins and outs of operating. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're lucky to have an operator that teaches you as an assistant, then you can learn operating that way. But sometimes you just need to sit in the operating chair, and that teaches a lot to be a good operator. And, and you know, I've, I had two, two, three. Three great people teaching about operating: Arthur Jaffa, Tas Michos, mm-hmm. Anastas Michos, and uh, Kenneth Zunder. Those three guys really taught me what it means to be sort of a union level, LA level operator mm-hmm. um, and the rules. But as an assistant, I kind of just learned being assistant just through baptism by fire. And um, technically, just to I feel like you just, you have a familiarity with cameras that some, there are some cinematographers that didn't come up through the camera department. So they don't have the same, like they don't have the same familiarity with the camera itself. I just have a familiarity with cameras. If if you hand me any camera, I'll figure it out. I'm not, I could put together any camera. Like Mm -hmm. if I, if you left me without an assistant, that will mean nothing to me. Yeah. There are some DPs you can't leave them without a camera assistant because they they would have a hard time putting a camera together. It's just not the department they came out of. Mm-hmm. They come out of the grip and electric department. So if you if you leave them with the grip and electric truck, they could they'll they'll rig anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and I because I came out of the camera department, I can. There's no camera thing that I can't figure out, and I think that makes you think a certain way. You know, I have a certain relationship with cameras, and I don't favor one over the other. I definitely just take cameras for what they are for the situation. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I don't have any preference this versus that. It's just whatever will work for the thing, and you know, sometimes it's about exploring new things. So, as far as those three cinematographers, as well as Bradford Young, what kind of mentorship shape your experience as a cinematographer? 
That's a good question. I mean, um, I worked for Kenny Zunder and, and Toss um, as an operator on a major network television show. So I feel like those guys taught me, you know, how to be a professional operator and in some ways cinematographer. Um, what were the rules? And they, they had very different styles and completely different approaches. And I still learned so much from each of them. Mm-hmm. Um, AJ has been sort of really, not, I don't know, mentorship. The mentorship kind of happened. He would never consider himself my mentor. Mm-hmm. He always considered us colleagues. But AJ, AJ was a person who just instilled a certain kind of confidence in me. Mm-hmm. Early on, I, I started working as AJ's camera assistant. and our relationship within one job turned from camera assistant to like just friends and like the guy I was like the guy who just kind of helped him out I wasn't his camera assistant Mm -hmm. you know what I mean like it wasn't like he quickly saw us as equals within one job Mm. you know what I'm saying Mm -hmm. again and and from then on he always treated me like an equal even if I was his camera assistant Mm -hmm. you know what I mean like Mm -hmm. like technically that's how I was being paid but he always treated me like his equal um and that is huge i think for if you have one person that treats you like an equal and sees you as an equal so he was the first person to give me the opportunity to operate he handed the responsibility of the department to me on a, on a very important project to him and and he and he gave me that responsibility and um you know like he's he and that way he jump-started a, a very important part of my career by by doing that mm-hmm. because from that moment on, I was never seen as a camera assistant again because I was I was pretty well known, at least in New York, as a, as Brad's camera assistant. Um, and people, you know, they, they wanted me to come pull focus. They wanted me to come and you know run their departments as an assistant. But AJ is the first person to say, "Now you could, you're bigger. Like you're, he's always you used to always be like, you're DP, you're DP, you're DP." Mm-hmm. And you know, first big his a big job for him. He let me operate, and that was huge. Because then I got the TV show after that as an operator. And really, it's like it's been sort of like the rest is history in a mm-hmm. real way. And mm-hmm. and we've always communicated as equals. Um, so, yeah, that was just, you know, just talk philosophy, talk um, navigating to the business. To, you know, like we like he just just his honesty about him, his history with the business and his future with the business was so helpful to me because being able to kind of talk it out with him, you get frustrated, man. You get frustrated because when you're in it, it just feels like, it just felt like for me, just nothing was ever happening fast enough. Mm. Never felt like it was happening fast enough. It never felt like I was getting my fair shot at anything. Mm. And it's very surprising for people to hear, but I, I've always for so long felt like it just wasn't even a shot. And the truth is, I think if you looked at me on paper, like it, it doesn't make sense why I would feel that way. <laughs> Yeah. You know, it, it's like I shouldn't. Like I didn't go to traditional film school. Um, I didn't. I didn't do anything traditionally. So it's like, what was I complaining about? But it, mm-hmm. but you know, I could, I just locked so many hours, especially on the indie side, and it just felt like people were getting opportunities, and just felt like I wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so having somebody you can kind of bounce that emotion off of is helpful, mm-hmm. uh, and makes a big difference. So. Yeah, just getting the you know that guidance is so important, and I'm trying to do the same thing. I'm trying to figure out a way to guide people um, in the same way, bring people on, trust them, trust they're gonna make mistakes. The, the mistakes are not like you can't you can't ex somebody because of a mistake. Mm-hmm. You're just gonna make mistakes. It's like this business is you know it's just it's, it's impossible to be perfect. So. Um, yeah, I just I really believe in giving back in that way. And I'm trying to, you know, be consistent and identify people and and um, just give them opportunities and and confidence, you know, because that's all it really is. I mean, there's no trickery to this game. If you get if you get an opportunity in this business, if you, if you've never touched a camera and I put you on a TV show and you spend you know 12 hours a day on that camera. You'll be okay by season one. By season two, you'll be good to be, you know, decent to good. By season three, you'll be an expert. Mm-hmm. So you you don't need to come into this business good. Like you just need the opportunity. Like that's the miss. Like you hear people say, "Well, I want the best person." There is no best person. It's just people who are given the opportunity 
and given the space to not be perfect for a little bit of time until he became perfect. Mm-hmm. Like that's important. So you, and you have to be given that opportunity. That's something that somebody gives to you. You're never perfect. You're, you're given that opportunity. So you got to be as a cinematographer and as a producer, you got to be in a position to give people's opportunities to make mistakes, to work them through those mistakes, to protect them through the mistakes. So they don't get fired because they made a mistake. And then so they, within a short time, they will stop, make, they will not make mistakes if they're meant to do this, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and it, that, you know, I feel like that's a reflection of my career. And I, I, that's the way I want to treat people that I'm mentoring. It's like, I got to give them room, man. I got to give them room. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's really an insightful information, a great mindset to have. Um, I think that's something a lot of people struggle with is letting go of control and, and putting faith into people. I want to talk more about, I guess, your your career as a cinematographer. What inspires you to work on specific projects that you have worked on or that you will work on in the future? Like, what do you look for in the story that makes you say, okay, I want to dedicate a huge chunk of my my time to this project? I mean, you know, sometimes it's just a matter of there's something about the script that draws you. I mean, I'm I'm a screenwriter, so I appreciate a well-crafted script. I really just do. I have a creative partner who's a writer director and we write a lot of projects together. And sometimes he gives me his scripts to sort of critique and, and add and, and help him rewrite. So that's something I just know how to do. And so when I read something that, that I'm like, oh yeah, there's no there's no there's no holes in this, there's not a lot of fat in it, and it's compelling. Um when I was an intern for uh, for uh, Edmonds Entertainment, Bridget Davis Bridget D. Davis was my boss, and I remember she used to always say about screenplay, she says, if you, she's like, if you can't get past page 10, put it down. It's not worth finishing. Mm. It's not well written, and I got to look for that. If I can't get past page 10, then I should, I certainly should be shooting it. Mm. That's for sure. (laughs) And no matter who the person is, you don't take on a, a screenplay as a cinematographer that you don't like, because once you've agreed to shoot it, you have no right to complain about anything mm. you just don't because you have the opportunity to not do it nobody put a gun to your head you don't have to shoot this movie so if there's something about the director you don't like if there's something about the production if you could see things not moving in the direction that you're going to be a positive force in this thing then you are supposed to say no because once you sign on you can't that you're not just not allowed you can't be the disruptor you just mm-hmm. can't you know so once you're in, you're in. If it's bad, it's bad. You just got to go down with the ship. Like the, 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 I have that deep <laughs> philosophy. Like you can't because you had the chance to say no. Yeah. There are no surprises in this business. There really aren't. You're like we. You're not surprised. There's some. Sometimes to say something, do something somewhere to reveal that this is what's going to happen later on. And if you don't take the time to say, look, if, you know, you know, depending on if you're a cinematographer, you're not producers. You can't make people change things. And you, it's your, it's your job to jump off. And, you know, what I disagree with is, you know, you're the DP and you're complaining about the quality of the production. Well, people showed you who they were before you started, before you actually got into production. So you knew these things were going to happen. You just chose to ignore it. And if you chose to ignore it, well, now you got to go down the ship. That's just what happened. It's mindset. So, and I have to, re- I remind myself of that, you know, yeah. if you didn't see it, then you don't complain. We have to finish the project. You can't be the disruptor. The cinematographer is not allowed to be the disruptor. It can't be, I can't be causing issues. People have to do meetings because I'm complaining about something. I can't, that can't be on me. That That's okay if it's somebody else. It's okay if it's a producer. It's okay if it's a screenwriter. It's okay if it's an executive. It cannot be the cinematographer. Mm. That is not our purpose. Our purpose is we are the custodian of the story. We are, we are the ushers. We are the guide. We are the protectors. And we are sworn once we agree to do it, to do it. We don't get to complain. We don't get to question. We had our opportunities to question because you're not drafted to be a cinematographer. You choose to do it. Mm-hmm. And you're not drafted to a story. You choose to do it. So if that's the case, you have opportunities to, to question what's happening mm-hmm. and, to, and to back out. Your job is to back out. Well, you know what, guys? I can't do you know, the reasons I can't do this. Uh, thank you. Thank you for you know, gonna, If you don't see that you are going to be your best self in that space, mm-hmm. 
you know. So I, you know, I just, I, I, you know, I just look for something that makes me finish, you know, I can finish the script where I'm setting. Uh, in a weird way, I found that people know when I'm not a hundred percent sold on something. Mm. There's, 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 there's one part of me that doesn't have a poker face. That, that it's, <laughs> there's some. I found that things. There are things that I would do that I'm not in love with, but I would do it. And it's like it's weird. People want the in love from me, yeah. and when they don't see that, they don't hire me. Yeah, that makes sense. I've, I've been finding. Yeah, I've been finding that I like. I've been telling on myself. There are things that I'm like, I'll do it, and I would. I would totally do it. I'd probably like it once I really, really got into it. But people know, and they don't want. They don't want that. They, you know, I think I've revealed like when I'm enthusiastic about something. So I, I find that that it's actually the reverse. People will not hire me when they don't feel like I'm. What type of process do you like when working with the director in the uh, prep stage, the pre-production stage? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I don't, I don't feel like I have something sort of new. Um, I like to have a conversation with the director. I'm, I'm most. I, I, most important to me is knowing the, I need to know emotionally who a director is because I feel like we're going to battle. You know, I need to know what I can say, what I can't say, what are this person's insecurities? What are they confident about? Those are the things I'm, I need to know. I feel like, mm -hmm. because we're going into battle, even if it's, even if things go right, it's still a battle. Mm -hmm. And I need to know who I'm going into battle with so those are the things i'm interested in, in knowing you know what i mean if they hired me then they trust whatever technical thing i'm bringing you know there's no there's no discovery there right they're just going to trust it mm -hmm. if i decide to do the job i trust there's something i'm trusting in them so or there's something that even if i know they're not good at i'm not that doesn't worry me so mm -hmm. I feel like it for me it's and that's a hard not everybody wants to expose themselves. Like everybody doesn't want to tell you who they are emotionally. Like so for me it's like how do I figure that out? What am I looking at? What do I watch? What do I see to get a sense of who this person is? Mm. You know? Because I feel like that's what's important to me. Because I, I take it I like to be close to my directors emotionally, you know. Um, yeah, like that's where I like I like to be close. I like to feel like we can talk, we can like the person who's I'm like I want to like we should be friends. Yeah. Like we should be friends. Like really close. Like I don't care to work with people I wouldn't be friends with. Not really, honestly. Mm. So, um, and then technically, then I you know my technical process is evolving. I think, and I think your you know up and coming cinematographers can identify with this. You know, the the first you know the first years of doing this, it was just about making sure nobody fired me because mm. the image was bad. You know. <laughs> yeah. Then it was, then it was like, then it was like, okay, now I want people to rehire me or recommend me, you know, now I'm getting to the point where, all right, the, like the, the mastery, the curiosity of my craft, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so I'm getting to a point where I was just talking to somebody yesterday, a colorist, uh, a supervisor for a, a color shop. I was like, yeah, my next project I'm coming in. Like I'm gonna basically make the producers hire the colorist first, so I can spend time with the colorist. Wow! So we can plan things, and we can figure out what you know. What are the we can talk about the way? Like I would literally bring footage I've shot, raw footage I've shot. We can I have the colorist sort of critique it, talk about it, dissect it, inform myself technically, and then create tests, tests, and then go out. And sh you know, then shoot. Mm -hmm. So I'm I'm taking the I feel like I'm taking the next technical step. Because I know even if I don't do that, I'll still get a good product. Mm -hmm. So I'm no longer, that's not a worry anymore, right? Mm -hmm. Now it's just like, now it's like, just there's things I want to know. I want to know that I know certain things because I'm no longer operating out of any sense of insecurity. Mm -hmm. If I don't get a job, I don't get it. Like, I don't have to feel a certain way about it. You know, now it's about like my knowledge. I just want to be better. Mm -hmm. I want to be a better cinematographer. Mm -hmm. Like in the thing that I'm interested in, you know, whatever that is. So that's what I, you know, I want to know the things I don't know and learn them and understand them. Um, I like to be aesthetically grounded. I like to be philosophically grounded. Mm -hmm. So I feel like you should have a philosophy. You know, there's a, there's a piece of music, there's a piece of art that grounds your approach. Um, so sometimes I share that with the director. Sometimes I'll keep it to myself and it's just the way I operate. Sometimes your director doesn't need to hear that. They they got their own thing going, and they don't need you getting in their head. Mm -hmm. 
yeah and then and then you know you got to prepare the bigger the budget you got to prepare you got to be willing to prepare so you've got to do lookbooks you've got to map out the way scenes should have because i think part of what that is is i'm a, i'm not a i naturally don't plan like that it's not the way i naturally operate but part of what things are so complicated part of what that does it really gets you it gets people like me thinking better when i actually when you plan because you throw away the plan right or people like me are always going to throw out the plan but we sort of make another plan in our style in our heads mm-hmm. because we took the time to plan it planning for us is painful like planning the way normal people do is painful but it still it tre- it helps it enhances what we do naturally mm-hmm. because it allows us to to then improvise at our highest level and you know if you know anything about jazz improvisers the best improvisers will sit and do boring scales all day they just do scales and they would sit and do scale you know and then so when they can improvise they just boom they're killing it but they do the boring work first because then that allows them to that the feeling and that they have doing the boring work allows them to do that mm. so that's for me the next stage of my approach like do this work that you that some sometimes love that work they love the technical they, they plan they love that mm. they, they that they rest on that that's the way they operate i don't operate that way mm. i gotta do that you know, the more the bigger the bug is the, the more you gotta do that stuff. nothing bad has ever happened when i sat and planned something <laughs> so that's the case you know, mm-hmm. so so that's my that's where I'm moving towards is like sharing a lot of visuals, you know, planning things, um, things like that is 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 what I'm doing. Okay, and if is there a difference between the way you prep or shoot or or your process in working on a documentary versus a narrative? Uh, I think for me, I mean, there are there are there are differences like because there's genre differences because they're different you know so there's a different thing there's a you know it's a different approach you know documentary just has like you, there are certain things you can't plan for ahead of time in documentary that you can in narrative so that those are inherent to the thing mm-hmm. um but i for me philosophically not necessarily so like the, the biggest difference is philosophical like there's more improvisation that's available to me in narrative and there's a documentary like mm-hmm. there's an inherent limit in documentary you know what i mean like i can't if i'm doing an interview look there's like there's only so i i, I gotta have five cameras it's not gonna necessarily help the interview mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. um like unless i have unlimited money i like i may have to in one location figure out how to how to get two or three interviews out of that location but like in, in narrative, we use this location, boom, we're moving on to the next location. Like that's not a big deal. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're gonna move to the location down the block. We're not gonna use the same house. We may use a kitchen in this house and then use a living room in a completely different house. You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. that's that's expected in there. It's not expected in documentary, the inherent limitations. So within those limitations, that's what you got. You can't I can't push a narrative philosophy and doc because it just doesn't work. And 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 in some ways there are things that are more consistent, I think, in documentary. You know, you're gonna sometimes you're gonna use the same lenses, you're gonna see the same camera, you're gonna do things the same. And the narrative things can change. Like if you're doing a throwback scene, you may use a complete set of lenses or a complete different camera. You may, you know, you may have to switch out this camera because you're gonna do high speed and the, the camera you're using doesn't really do high speed and this one does it better. You need bigger resolution for certain kind of technical shots. You're not gonna have too many of those changes in doc. I'm doing a doc now that we are going to sort of have a little bit of this, like our interviews are going to be done on one type of camera. Some of our barricades are going to be done on a different type of camera. And some other shots, especially shots, are going to be done on a different type of camera. Mm-hmm. But, you know, typically it's like it's, you're going to use one basic camera for everything, one set of lenses. And, you know, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't get too, too crazy with documentary. You have to remember that it's about the subject. And you have um, financial and time limitations that, you can plan for it in narrative, but you can't necessarily plan for it in documentary. Okay. Do you do you prefer one over the other, documentary uh, over narrative, uh, or vice versa? I I never considered myself a narrative filmmaker for a really long time. I mean, I should say that I never considered myself a documentary filmmaker. I thought I thought like this, it was like a special type of person that did documentary. 
um, until I found myself constantly doing documentaries. Um, and I always thought of myself as a narrative filmmaker and yeah. kind of what I, like, the epiphany I've had in the last couple of months, and I can't remember the, the name, there's a, there's a cinematographer who spent like 10 years as a well-known, but almost exclusively documentary filmmaker. And then the first chance he got to do a narrative really did well and has been you know, celebrated narrative filmmaker since. Um, I've been learning that there's so many things that documentaries are teaching me. They're going to be helpful in narrative that for a while I didn't, I wasn't paying attention to those lessons. And now like, I just did something recently, something, you know, and I realized like, oh my gosh, this is, this thing is, docs are teaching me so much about how I'm going to operate in narrative. They're teaching me about speed and quality in a way that I wouldn't have learned. I just wouldn't have. Mm. And I'm starting to appreciate like the lessons that they're giving me. And I'm starting to, because I was saying like, look, I'm not doing documentaries anymore. I just finished, uh, finished Contact High. This is a documentary, a documentary installation at the Annenberg Museum of Photography in, in LA. It's a complimentary documentary to the, to the installation at the museum. And the installation was based on a book of the same name. And I said, look, that's my last doc. And I had, like, I had just had three documentaries come out in the last three weeks or so. Mm -hmm. I have Wu-Tang Clan, Contact High, and Grass is Green. And I said, that's it. I'm not doing it anymore. <laughs> but I kind of realized, well, I'm going to focus on there, but I kind of realized, like, like, I'm learning a lot. Mm -hmm. Like, I really am. Like, like, as a cinematographer, it's about working. It's not about a specific type of work. It's working. Mm -hmm. Putting the camera in your hands. You will learn something if you open yourself. So you're gonna you're gonna learn to whatever thing you want to do. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm definitely emotionally and even I would say spiritually like opening myself up to no longer feeling I'm getting pigeonholed. I'm not like mm -hmm. that's not true. Like that's only in my head. The truth is, I'm learning things from doing this, and I need to take on those lessons because they're gonna I'm gonna need them mm -hmm. for the other things I'm gonna do. So I need to stop the resistance, and I. And I have, and it feels so good. It actually is weird. It, it feels really, really good to, to, to not feel like, oh, another dog. Somebody's having me do another dog. It's like, oh man, great. I know this is an interesting subject. Okay. Yeah. How am I going to, how am I going to tackle this? Like I've, I've had a renewed energy because I realized like, well, I was afraid of was like, okay, everything I do is going to look the same as this is up and I'm going to get pigeonholed. But I realized like, you know, different subjects. It, it comes out differently and that's okay you know and you know it's about working with the it's about working with the director it's about working with the subject matter and to the best of my abilities shaping what i do so it shapes so it conforms itself to the needs of the director and the story that's being told mm. that's the challenge you know and and that's okay and that's good and so i've become okay so i'm no longer i'm no longer having a preference i love to tell you know, narrative stories. I'm so comfortable telling narrative stories. I always felt like I was uncomfortable doing documentaries in a weird way. Like, I just had this reduced state to me. Like, I want to work with you more. We're going to work together. We just have to figure out this, this verite thing because I don't, you know, I'm not into verite. Mm -hmm. But that's like, that's a, that's a, like, that's literally a black man in life philosophy. Like, well, black people around the world don't want no camera stuck in their face. Mm -hmm. You know? So that's, I don't want to stuck, because I don't want to stick the camera in their face. Like, mm -hmm. it's just that simple. <laughs> you know? It's like, I feel some kind of way doing that, mm. you know, mm. I know, I know, I know my grandma or my auntie or my, my neighbors growing up, you know, people around me, people in the neighborhoods I live wouldn't want somebody running around who they don't know with a camera in their neighborhood shooting stuff. Yeah, yeah. It would, that would make them that uncomfortable. So why would I participate? Why would I turn around and do that and say, well, it's for this thing that's important. Well, how do they know? You know, so I have, I have that, that philosophical dilemma with Verite. But I, you know, I'm really loving working with directors and different subject matters and, and people are reacting to the experience of watching a documentary film that I've been a part of. And that's so rewarding. And the idea, you know, I'm laughing at myself, the idea that I thought that I need to stop doing that is preposterous. Mm -hmm. So, but I, you know, I love, I love telling a good story. Like I love comedies. I love uh, romantic comedies. Those are, I got in this business to write romantic comedies. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. That's awesome. The problem is, the problem is, I'm neither romantic nor funny. So, <laughs> um, so I. <laughs> but that's you know, I'd love to produce. I, if I, if you said, if they were like, look, uh, Hans, we're gonna sign you to produce ten romantic comedies. I that that that'd be it. Mm -hmm. I'd be, 
I'd be producing romantic comedies for the next 10 years, mm. comedy a year. <laughs> romantic comedies aren't, aren't as hot right now. Documentaries are hotter. <laughs> I know, but man, there's, there's nothing like a good romantic comedy. Yeah, like my whole life, those are the movies I love the most are the yeah. romantic comedies. Yeah, I, lo- I love them too. You, you were mentioning the lessons that you learn from shooting docs that you can apply to narratives. Is there any lesson that you can share with us? I think that there's always a simple way of doing things. Mm-hmm. Find the simplicity. Big and grandiose is not always the best way, you know? You mean like a fancy uh, shot? A fancy shot, a fancy lighting setup. Like sometimes you got to go with the simple. Mm-hmm. Something I've learned from documentaries is I don't always, I'm not always, the, I don't always know the right shot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, sometimes I don't know the right shot. Sometimes somebody else knows the right shot. And you got to be open to people with their suggestions. And you can't be like, look, I'm the sometimes. No, you got to be like, okay, you can always try something. Always try it. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And especially if it doesn't work and somebody else suggested it, well, guess what? You know, now we know that doesn't work and we move on. You don't, you, those are not the beaches to die on, in mm-hmm. my opinion, as cinematographer. Okay. You know, those are not the beaches to die on. Sometimes, because sometimes you will surprise yourself that suggestion was right on. You got to be open to that. Or sometimes the suggestion is what that person wanted. doesn't matter if you didn't want it. doesn't matter if you didn't think that should be the shot. That's what the, the director, the producer wanted. And if you give them what they want and they're happy with it, then you have accomplished your goal. Your goal is not always to Im- Im- impose your look or feeling on something. Mm. Your goal is to satisfy the needs of the director, the, the, the producer, and the story. Sometimes that responsibility is 100% solely on you sometimes it's a shared responsibility and you have to know when to say okay i'll try it you have to know when to do that you know okay and that has helped me a great deal sometimes saying okay i'll try it not what i would do but it made you happy and and the the other lesson i learned is like the dude made that decision very quick to sometimes not argue that's just it's like it's like okay they made a suggestion okay mm-hmm. let's try it <laughs> Like, it doesn't have to be, well, okay, well, I think that, it, no, no, sometimes just, you got to know when you can say that and when you can't. Mm. And it's error on the side of, mm, just do what they ask. If it doesn't work, people know it doesn't work. And then they'll be like, oh, it didn't work. You were right. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know? Whose work have you studied that's helped you grow as a cinematographer? <sighs> that's like, that's like asking me whose rapper's lyrics that I like. I'm one of those people that I can't remember certain things. Mm-hmm. Like I can't remember lyrics. I can never remember. I know cinematographer names. I know movies. It's hard. For, it's always. It's always hard for me to put two and the two together. Like mm-hmm. I'll. I'll see. Oh, that's such and such film. You know. And then I'll literally forget what films they shot. <laughs> are, are there any, Are there any movies that you can think of that you you just love? Right now. I just realized after like showing it like over and over again, I realized that my favorite visual film, the film that if you said, you can remake this film frame for frame, I wouldn't touch it. Mm-hmm. In the Mood for Love by Juan Carl Wilde, shot by Chris Doyle. Okay. This, I think it's the most perfect cinematography. And it's just, it's exactly, if I was that skilled, what I would do. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's for that story. Mm-hmm. It works for that story. So like it's, you know, it's because it represents a combination of things. It represents the great script, visionary script, visionary uh, directing, visionary editing, like all, it's all the elements of, of filmmaking that come together. And on top of it, it looks good. You see what I'm saying? So it's mm-hmm. not one thing. It's like all the elements. It's, it's the film I watch over and over again. It still make it moves me emotionally every time I see it. And it's the films like I wouldn't touch it. I wouldn't touch it. I don't even want to copy it. It's so good. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's so so good. It, it moves me. It gives me so much joy to play that movie and watch it. And yeah, it's heartbreaking. I never watched the last ten minutes. You not not once. So hard. Yeah, I can't watch it. It's heartbreaking. Wow. It's so good. I've seen it so many times. It still hits me. Mm. It still hits me for the characters. I still don't want them to go through that. Is it so a the last comedy? Minutes, 
Uh, it's not a comedy. It's like a romantic drama. Got it. Got it. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. It's oh, it's so beautiful. Got to check so that beautiful. out. Got to so, check that out. So yeah, Juan Carwai. Juan Carwai is a master, um, but in the mood for love is just, just, uh, and it, it wasn't. You know, if you watch Mother of George, Mother of George was inspired by in the mood. Mother of George by Andrew Dassum was the, the director. Mm-hmm. Shot by that. That was their their visual sort of ode. A lot of people have been moved by that, and so it's it's my favorite visual um, film. But I, you know, I I really do like all. You know, you name the greats. Mm-hmm. I I really like what they do. I really like. I can see it. I can see what they're doing, and and I can imagine how hard it is. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. All right. Thank you very much, Hans, for joining us in the Black Film Space podcast. Really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, where can I know you said you have three movies that you shot that are coming out soon, right? Yeah. I mean, we Wu Tang Clan comes out on Showtime May tenth. I know the film is Wu-Tang Clan of Mikes and Men. If you're in L.A. and you stop at the Annenberg Museum, you can see Contact High, the documentary. It's about 20 minutes long mm-hmm. at the Annenberg Museum for Photography in Los Angeles. And Grass is Greener, a film by Fab Five Freddy about uh, the culture of marijuana and, and Black folks in this mm-hmm. country and the history and culture of Black folks and marijuana in this country. Contact High can be seen on Netflix. Um, and, you know, I have a narrative film called One Angry Black Man that I was a cinematographer and the producer of, mm-hmm. uh, directed by a gentleman named Menelik Bamuba, my creative partner. That will be soon. Soon you will be able to see that on mm-hmm. your streaming platform. So look out for it. But it's, it's been in the uh, festival space. So continue to look for it in festivals and it will soon be in, in streaming. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so those are, you know, and they're all films I'm super, super, super proud of. Dope, dope. That sounds amazing. Um, is there anywhere we can follow you on social media? Yeah, I don't do a lot of Twitter, but you can follow me both at Twitter and Instagram. I do a lot of Instagram, but I don't think you'd be interested in what I post. But <laughs> um, at Cineclass, C-I-N-E-C-L-A-S-S, Cineclass, as in cinematography class, Cineclass, at Cineclass on Twitter and Instagram. All right. Thank you very much, Hans. Have a good one. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Black Film Space podcast. If you're interested in being part of our community and attending events, please visit us at blackfilmspace.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Black Film Space. Subscribe to our email list and podcast. Thank you. See you soon.